Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. After 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Genesis chapter 8, verses 6 through 14, New International Version. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 14 through 17, New International Version. Hello! I'm Victoria Kay, welcoming you to another episode of Anchored by Truth. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author, founder, and as we have seen, part-time humorist for Crystal Sea Books. R.D., I understand that today we're going to hear the last in the Life Lessons with a Laugh series about the story of Noah and the Flood. My big question is whether in this life lesson you're going to be any more successful at getting Jerry's name right, or Noah's for that matter. And if you are, where will we go from there? Well, there's no point in ruining the suspense about the name game. But as to where we go from there, today I'd like to spend a little time thinking about what I call the story of the story. Hmm, all that sounds a little intriguing and scary at the same time. Okay. Let's listen to you and Jerry unearthing, so to speak, one more lesson from the story of Noah and the Genesis Flood. Dude, what in the world are we doing up here? I thought... Tut-tut there, my wind-blown wayfaring workmate. 
We haven't even introduced ourselves to the audience yet. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's just I barely made it in here through all the snow. <laughs> well, Crystal Sea pals and partners, as you can tell, we've once again changed location to conclude our series on gifts to glean from the biblical saga of North Star and the Ark. It's Noah. I'm R.D. Fierro. And before you go there, I'm... Jerry. Jerry. Uh, ooh, wait, did you... How... It was right there on the front of the parka you just took off. Anyway, while Frosty the Jerryman gets himself settled, you need to know we're in a scenic log cabin high in an alpine setting. Today, we want to think about the wondrously wrought work of wood and willpower that Noah's wood rightsmanship wrestled from the woodland so that his family could persist to exist till the mists were dismissed. Hey, hey, hang on, R.D. You got something going there. Do what you just said. Persist. Do it like you just said. Persist to exist. Yeah. Persist, persist till the mists are dismissed. All right. Feel it. Persist to exist till the mists are dismissed. It's got a vibe going to it. Persist to exist till the mists are dismissed. Yeah, I don't know if that's the vibe I'm feeling with it. Try it again like you first did it. Persist to exist till the mists are dismissed. Now... A little more fluid. Give it a little more motion. Persist to exist till the mists are dismissed. Roll with it. Persist to exist till the mists are go. dismissed. Yeah. Yeah. Now. Now. Feel it. Feel it. Jump in there. Persist to exist till the mists are dismissed. Persist to exist. Come on, I want to play too. Persist to exist till the mists are dismissed. 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 That's it, dude. Persist to exist till the mists are dismissed. And that's cool and all, but why are we here? And so far away from the beach we were on just a couple of days ago. Look around you, Jero Frost. This log cabin is a perfect place to experience the authenticity of how strong structures built out of wood and pitch can be. I mean, look how calm everything is once you came in from the breeze outside. Breeze. That wind was blowing snow into body parts I didn't know had openings. And there you go. Think what conditions must have been like on the outside of the ark. You would have needed a terrifically tough craft to withstand the terrifying typhoon and torrential tides that would have been thrusting rubbish and wreckage against all sides of the ark. Hmm, never thought about that. Kind of surprised you would. So what you're saying is that it's important that the Lord told Noah how to build the ark as well as how big to build it. Now your fritters are frying in the fat, my fine friend. Wouldn't mind having some fritters right now with a light dusting of powdered sugar. Zucchini fritters up! Don't turn your nose up like that. You could stand to skip a few carbs. Not my fault if all that snow reminded me of powdered sugar. Focus, Gourmet Jay, focus. In our earlier lessons, we learned that the Ark's design was not only the right size to hold all the animals, but also that it had the stability it needed in rough seas. All right. Where is your floppy rudder going? I mean, where are you steering us now? Always the same destination to any land where the Lord leads. 
In the case of the Ark, we're not only concerned about its size and stability, but also its strength. The Lord told Noah to make the Ark out of gopher wood and cover it inside and out with pitch. While scholars aren't sure exactly what kind of wood that was, many think it was a form of cypress or cedar, the part about the pitch is truly amazing. Do tell, my oily instructor, do tell. Oily? Hey. Oh, oh, I get it. Oil, pitch, yeah. But no. In this case, the pitch wasn't made from a petroleum or tar base, but it was probably a combination of some form of tree sap or resin mixed with charcoal made from downed trees. Pitch was made like that for centuries and used in the production of ocean-going ships. Hmm, well, that would help stop leaks. The pitch not only helps seal the ark against leaks, but remember the Lord told Noah to coat the ark with pitch inside and out. Modern tests of wood walls coated with a product similar to the biblical pitch show that it not only makes the wood leak-proof, but it also makes the wood much more impact-resistant. Well, at least early on, there would have been a lot of wreckage and remains being tossed about in some pretty rough seas. Now you're seeing the forest through the trees. The Lord is not only in the deluge, He's in the deliverance. True that. Makes me feel all snuggy warm inside, like I've had a big cup of hot cocoa with a generous pile of apple fritters. <laughs> Lightly coated with powdered sugar. Well, Gourmet Jay... Your affection for appetizing Epicurean edibles always appears when your insights abound. Hey, what's that noise outside? Snowmobile from the ski lodge just over the ridge. I took the liberty of booking my own passage to the place where a filet and gourmet array are on display in a warm chalet. Room for two? Of course, are you? Uh, are you? Are you ready to ride? The world can be cold, but you can be bold. The Lord's plan will unfold when his hand you hold. Again, Mobile Jay, you have successfully traversed the trail to the top of that mountain of biblical wisdom. The secret is to hold on tight to the pilot so you don't fall off when he goes round the bend. Well, that's it from Jerry. Uh, wait. Me, R.D., and the whole Crystal Sea Snowmobile crew for today. You got it right. Of course. It's on the back of your parka, too. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where we're not famous, but our boss is. Okay, there were two big surprises in that lesson. First, you got Jerry's name right. Not once, but twice. Second, you pointed out that a detail as seemingly insignificant as God's direction to coat the ark with pitch actually helps confirm the truth of the entire account. Well, the fact that I got Jerry's name right might be a surprise, but the value of adding the pitch to the ark is a detail that many others have noted as they've done research on the flood account. There's a really good article that gives more detail about the pitch's role in shipbuilding on creation.com. So in the last three life lessons, you covered the fact that the biblical description of the ark makes sense in the real world, right? As described in the Bible, the ark would have had the size to carry the animals and their food. It had the right dimensions to remain stable in rough seas, and the nature of the wood available in Noah's location, combined with a coating of pitch, would have produced a very strong vessel. All these factors help increase our confidence that the biblical story is a true story. 
But you said that today you wanted to talk about the story of the story. What in the world do you mean by that? Well, I'd like to start by thinking about the kinds of stories, the other kinds of stories that old guys like me like to tell. Uh-oh. That is starting to sound scary, too. Well, not really. And you'll like this illustration. Let's suppose that there was a high school athlete. We'll call him Your Majesty, who is a baseball player. And one year, Your Majesty hits a single late in the day that drives home the winning run in the game. And his team goes on to make it to the playoffs, in part due to the win of that particular game where he hit the game-winning single. That's the kind of story that Your Majesty would likely repeat many times during the rest of his life, right? Well, if Your Majesty is like you... Exactly. If Your Majesty is like a lot of us, he's going to tell that story a lot of times. Every time he meets a new neighbor, goes to the barber... Yeah, the story is going to be repeated a lot. But will it always be told in the same way? That's my question. Will the story always be told in the same way, or is it possible that it's going to grow a little over time? You mean by the time Your Majesty is in his 40s, now the single has become a double or a triple? There you go, or at least there goes Your Majesty. By the time Your Majesty's kids are entering high school, the single has become a double. And by the time they graduate from high school and go into college, it's probably now a home run. And after Your Majesty retires, the single has now become a grand slam, and he probably hit it with two outs and a full count in the bottom of the ninth. Which is why Your Majesty doesn't tell it when his high school sweetheart and wife of 50 years is around. Fair point. I told you you'd like this one. But you get the idea. Stories don't always end up where they start out even when there's a completely true story to begin with. So it shouldn't be surprising then, with an event as catastrophic as a biblical flood, that as Noah's descendants began to repopulate the earth and move around, the flood story would go with them. What are some of the best known of the variants? Well, one of the best known of the variants, and probably the one that most closely tracks the biblical account, is the Babylonian flood narrative. In the Babylonian flood narrative, their Noah, who is called Utnapishtim, is warned by a friendly god in advance that a great flood is coming and orders Utnapishtim to build an ark to save not only his own family, but also a group of representative animals. In the Babylonian account, the ark finally comes to rest on a mountain named Nisir in a mountain range that's northeast of Babylon. And similar to the biblical account, Utnapishtim sends out a dove, a swallow, and a raven to check out the conditions before they actually come out of the ark. Finally, Utnapishtim and his family are able to emerge from the ark, and when they do, they offer sacrifices to the gods. But in the Babylonian account, the gods are famished because they couldn't receive altar food while the floodwaters were on the earth. Quite a difference from the God of the Bible, who is completely self-sufficient and never has need of anything from the hand of man. True Dad. Well, because of the extent of the similarities between the biblical account and the Babylonian account, some observers have suggested that the biblical account might have arisen from the Babylonian account. But to me, this seems very highly unlikely, given some of the extremely significant differences between the two stories. Such as? Such as the design of the ark in the Babylonian story. In the Babylonian account, the ark that Utnapishtim built was built as a perfect cube with six decks. Now, it goes without saying that a boat, an ark, that was built in the form of a cube would not have any stability on the open ocean at all. 
So any passenger in such a vessel, even if the vessel somehow didn't capsize, would likely be beaten to death, quite literally. The Babylonian account contains no specific details, whereas the biblical account contains a number of specific details that tell us that they were recording real history. The biblical account says that it rained for 40 days and that it took 150 days for the water to recede. It gives us very specific dates. It says the ark rested on Mount Ararat on the 17th day of the 7th month, and it was on the 27th day of the 2nd month that the earth was dry. It was almost like God was filling in a day planner with the dates that he did things. And even though there is uncertainty about how those dates might translate into the Gregorian calendar we use today, 3,000 plus years ago when Moses first wrote the account, those dates would have been well understood. Yes, that's absolutely true. There's a popular tendency today to doubt the veracity of a historical account if we don't see how it immediately fits into the reference marks that we use in our world today. Just because we can't assign a precise Gregorian date to an event doesn't mean that that event isn't true. The Gregorian calendar only came into popular use in the 16th century in 1582, and there are still countries in the world that don't use the Gregorian calendar, even though we use it in the West and even though it is widely used around the world. So when you think about it, the majority of the world's history actually occurred before our current calendar ever took effect. When it comes to ancient calendars, there is some tantalizing confirmation of the Bible account that comes from a very surprising source. This sounds interesting. Well, it is interesting. The biblical time frame confirmation comes from actually an ancient Aztec native historian whose name was East Leo Shoshito. <laughs> Easy for you to say. Well, not so much. But anyway, Ishlil Shoshitl was an Aztec native historian who wrote that the world was in existence for 1,716 years before it was destroyed by a great flood. Now, what's so fascinating about this figure is that this figure of 1,716 years of the Earth's existence before the Earth was destroyed by a great flood is only about 60 years difference from the biblical chronology of 1656 years between the date of creation and the occurrence of the flood. Now, the Bible chronology is determined by taking the ages that are in the genealogies in Genesis chapter 5 and accounting for the overlap of each subsequent generation. So when you add up the ages in the Bible in the genealogies, that totals up to 1,656 years between the date of creation and the occurrence of the flood. And as I said, that's very close to the figure that's given by Ishil Shoshitl. Well, that is a fascinating coincidence, if that's what it is. Have you come across any other tantalizing tidbits? Well, there are some truly interesting hints that either the Genesis story or even Noah's name has been preserved in some surprising ways around the world. As most people know, traditional Chinese language uses symbols or characters for words as opposed to the way that the Western written languages use a combination of alphabetic letters to form words. Well, the Chinese character for a large ship is a combination of three what are termed radicals, and those radicals individually mean boat or vessel, the number eight, and a symbol for mouths or persons. Now, remember that the Bible account says that eight people were saved from death by the ark, Noah, his three sons, Sham, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. 
Now, this particular coincidence, again, if that's what it is, this particular phenomenon is fascinating because a lot of scholars date the existence of the written Chinese language to the general time frame of 1,200 years or so before the birth of Christ. And that's about the time that Orthodox Christian scholars believe that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. And some scholars actually believe that the Chinese characters predate the existence of a written version of the book of Genesis. So that would mean that the Chinese character for large vessel or ship was derived from a source that's independent of the biblical book at all. So one possibility is that the Chinese character's origin for boat or vessel just harkens back to the original flood account. And with respect to the potential preservation of Noah's name in other cultures around the world, other than those that were impacted by the Bible initially, the Hottentots of South America believe that they are descended from someone named Noah, and the Hawaiians report a flood from which only Nu'u and his family were saved. Those are intriguing details. But you say that some of the variant flood narratives also point to distinct differences with the Genesis narrative that lend more credence to the historicity of the biblical one. Yes, uh, so let's take a couple of looks at other flood narratives that contain fantastic or mythological elements, and you would contrast those mythological elements very clearly with more or less the plain historicity of the biblical account. For instance, there's an Ojibwa Indian legend that's from around the region of Lake Superior that tells that one time, near the beginning of time, a great snow fell in one September. Now, according to this legend, there was a bag that contained all of the sun's heat, so this heat couldn't affect the snowfall that occurred until a mouse nibbled a hole in the bag. So once the mouse had nibbled a hole in the bag that contained the sun's heat, the sun's warmth spilled over and it melted all the snow, and the melting of the snow produced a flood that rose above the tops of the highest pines. And in the Ojibwa legend, everyone on the earth drowned except for one old man who drifted about in his canoe rescuing animals. So it's easy to see the distinctions between these kinds of legendary stories and the biblical account. The biblical account is a very straightforward story. It contains dates that things occurred. It contains names of people, and those names are known in other historical documents, even outside of the Bible. It contains specific dates that things occurred. It contains details about a boat that are consistent with what we know about modern naval architecture. In other words, the biblical account is distinguished from these legendary accounts because the Bible account contains details that we see around us every day. I see what you mean. The details of the Bible story make sense in the real world. A boat with the ark's dimensions would be stable in an ocean environment, even one being racked by huge waves. The ark's size meant that it had a cargo capacity of up to 3.5 million cubic feet. We all know that boats need proper ballast for stability, and the ark would have had the most ballast when the seas were roughest. As the year in the ark went by, the people and animals would have had eaten the food, so the amount of ballast would have gradually decreased. It made sense that God told Noah to coat the ark with pitch, inside and outside. People made sturdy wooden boats and covered them in pitch and sailed them for hundreds of years. Doves and ravens still fly in our skies today. It made sense that the raven could survive outside the ark even before the water had completely dried because ravens are carrion eaters. 
so the raven could have landed on a piece of floating carcass and survived, whereas a dove couldn't. Doves eat fruits, seeds, and vegetables, so the dove had to come back to the ark until it could find food. There are massive geological formations on the Earth's surface that were once underwater, but today those formations are nowhere near an ocean. The list of details in the Bible story that make sense in the real world goes on and on. But the details in most of the variants don't make nearly as much sense in the real world. But the existence of those stories themselves are evidence that at one point, a real event took place, even if some of the details have gotten mixed up over time. Yes. Just like your Majesty's story of baseball heroism, which grew and expanded over time, the spread of the Bible stories as generations came and went around the world still harkens back to an original story somewhere. Obviously, these stories all offer us different opportunities to decide which one we believe. So it's up to us to consider the evidence and then make a hopefully intelligent decision and judgment as to which story is most likely the true story. In my opinion, I believe that on the basis of the available evidence, the biblical narrative demonstrates the strongest claim to historical authenticity. We've covered a lot of ground in the last few weeks, and our listeners have probably heard things about Noah's story that they had never heard before. For next time, I think you want to do a review and summary. True Dad. Our goal is to help the listeners to the broadcast or the podcast have a good basis upon which they can continue their own pursuit of the truth. So in these radio episodes and in the podcast, what we're trying to do is just provide a high-level overview of many of the details of the biblical story, and in the future we'll cover other biblical stories, but cover enough of the details of the biblical story to cause listeners to want to go and do their own research and investigate for themselves the evidence that supports the claims within the Bible. Ultimately, we all have to make a decision about what we think about the Bible. Today for our closing prayer, how about if we pray for our friends? They're an important part of our lives and God's plan for us. A prayer for friends. Heavenly Lord and Holy Father, we bless you and exalt you as we bow down before you. We are grateful that we can come into your presence and find a willing and loving master. You are the one who framed the mountains and carved out the oceans. How much more, then, can you assist your children? Lord, we thank you for the blessings of having friends. We believe that it is you who brings people into our lives who are a source of joy and fulfillment to us. We pray that you would help us to provide the same blessings to others. We thank you that you have helped us to meet people who help us to go beyond ourselves. Friends whose hearts are loving and generous toward us and who have steadfast spirits that keep them with us even during the difficult times. We pray that you would bless our friends with health, strength, and prosperity. We ask that you would look into the deepest recesses of their hearts as only you can and find the secret hopes and dreams there. As it conforms to your will, fulfill their desires and bring them more completely into your presence. Seek out those who do not yet embrace your name and your son and bring them into communion with you. 
Let them know that only friendships grounded in you will last for eternity and that joy unspeakable awaits those who put on Christ and then fellowship in His kingdom. Help us to be sensitive to the dings and dents of life that afflict others and help us to speak kind and encouraging words, especially when troubles are weighing them down. Help us to take action where such action will relieve pain or provide comfort. But help us also to know the boundaries that we should not cross. As Christ did, let us build relationships among the people we treasure and help us always to seek the good of others, even when we must set some of our own desires aside. It is your good pleasure to provide good gifts to us all, and it is impossible that we should ever bless others without being blessed by you. Bring harmony and peace to our relationships. Help us for our part to not injure or grieve others. Help us to be peacemakers using the example that your Son gave to us. Forgive us and help us to forgive others that all will know that we are the possession of your Son. In Christ's name we pray and offer praise. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.